I want you to turn over in your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. As we prepare our hearts for our communion time this morning, I just wanted to read this portion of Scripture for us and look a little bit about what it says and speak to you a little bit about the meaning of the cross, but even more importantly, why do we celebrate the death of our Savior? In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 24, he writes there, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When you look at these verses, there's a lot of theology there. (laughs) Uh, And I want to kind of take some of that theology and hopefully make it practical uh, for us uh, this morning. Because I don't think there's anything more practical for us as believers especially um, than the subject of the cross, the subject of Christ's death. At the time of Christ's death, remember Passover was the oldest of the, the Jewish festivals. In fact, it was older than any of the other celebrations of the Lord's covenant with Moses and Israel. And it was established even before the priesthood, the tabernacle, before the law, they celebrated the Passover. It was ordained by God while Israel was still um, captured, enslaved in Egypt. And so it had been celebrated by his chosen people for more than 1,500 years. And you say, well, why does that matter when we come to our communion table? What does that have to do with us today? I think because of what went on in the upper room with the Lord, with his closest followers who were there by his side when Christ celebrated the last really legitimate Passover. It really transformed its meaning. It replaced it with the new ordinance for God's people, the church, which we call communion. Uh, For centuries, I think Passover celebrated that fact that God delivered them from those 400 years of bondage in Egypt. It was a national memorial of God's faithful provision to them, his protection for the people, you might say. Um, And the, the principal lesson of the Passover was that deliverance from judgment requires blood to be shed. And that shed blood could come from a substitute, substitutionary death. In the case of the Passover, the substitutionary death was that of the unblemished lamb. We know that. And from that point on in Israel's history, really its entire sacrificial system reinforces the idea of substitutionary death as a nature of of judgment and even deliverance. And the sacrifices themselves didn't really accomplish anything in the Old Testament. 
We're told that over and over again. They simply foreshadowed what was to come, the ultimate sacrifice of our Savior Christ. And so sitting there in the upper room with his disciples, if you think about it for a second, Jesus was only four hours away from fulfilling those prophecies and those centuries of foretelling what was going to happen through all those sacrifices. He was prepared to be that sacrificial lamb that Israel had waited for so long. And in his final private moments with his entourage, with those who were closest to him, the disciples, he established a new memorial to God's provision and to God's protection. Not from temporary judgment in Egypt, but from eternal judgment in hell. And that's the difference, mainly. I mean, Passover was no small event in the lives of the Israelites, clearly. It was a symbol of their uh, national unity, who they were as a people, their bond together in the protection and the provision that the Lord provided for them. But in the same way, observing communion for us as the church, or the Lord's table as we call it, is really, it's a, it's a time when we gather as believers and we collectively come around this table and we're reminded of God's provision through his death, through Christ's death. And it should unite us as the people of God around the simple fact that we have been rescued that we have been transformed, that we've been saved, that we have been grafted into God's family. And that all is possible through this sacrifice that Christ gave on our behalf. It doesn't have some deeper spiritual significance. Celebrating communion doesn't Reoffer Christ as a sacrifice. We're not here to, to re-sacrifice Jesus as some churches teach, where the priest comes up and lifts the host up and, and it's a whole and it's done on an altar. We don't have an altar here. The last time I checked when Jesus' sacrifice was done on the cross, he said, What? It is. It is finished. We sang about that this morning. It's done. It's over. There's nothing more to be sacrificed for sin. His death was God's once-for-all provision for our sin. And any desire for any other sacrifice is really a rejection of that sacrifice, of Christ's sacrifice. Also, Christ does not inhabit these elements, this cracker and this grape juice. It's just that. It's a cracker and grape juice. It's not holy. It's a, a cracker without any yeast in it, and it's grape juice. Welch's grape juice. You can go over and find it in the refrigerator over there. But it symbolizes something. They're simply reminders of the body and the blood that he sacrificed to secure our salvation. And for our sakes, the Lord instituted this new memorial, this new commemoration, one that points us back to his life and his death. It reunites us in his love for our common, reunites us in in, in love for our common Savior. It gives a testimony of his sacrifice to an unsaved world. 
And it also builds anticipation that one day he will return. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, First Corinthians chapter 11, we have Paul's instructions concerning the Lord's table. He begins in verse 17. I just want to read this for us so it's fresh in our minds. But in the following instructions, I do not command you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Remember, the Corinthian church was a church riddled with problems. It was riddled with issues. For in the first place, and he begins to list off these issues they have, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it, in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Is it, it, is, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Verse 21, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 23, For I received... From the Lord, what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. See, there's an anticipation there that Christ is coming back. If you're a Christian, these reminders should hopefully move you to a greater love for the Savior. And the church that he died to redeem and he gave his life for. The Lord's table also helps guard the church. It helps guard the church against the presence of unchecked sin, of, of sin that's, that's not being held in check. The Apostle Paul exhorted them in that same text. He goes on and he says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the, the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Notice it says, let a person examine himself. I've had occasion after communion sometimes, people actually come up to me and they'll say, you know, I, I saw so-and-so take communion. I just don't think they should be taking communion because, you know, if you know what's going, what they're doing, that's, that's not right that they're taking communion. And I say, what is that your business? Why are you looking at them during communion? <laughs> It says, let a person what? Examine himself. You're not accountable for them to take communion. That's between them and the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's his problem. This is why many of you are weak and ill. And some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, if we honestly assess ourselves, then then we're not going to be judged. But it says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are what? Disciplined. It's talking to believers. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. So when you, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Not anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And concerning the other things, I'll put in order when I get there, Paul says. So they had other issues besides this, we know. But along with church discipline, communion works to guard the purity of the church, of Christ's bride, until he returns. And when we regularly celebrate the Lord's table, it provides kind of a positive reinforcement for us to confess and repent of any known sin in our lives. It forces us to consistently weed out, to destroy sin. I love the passage Bob read this morning. Because he says in there, Sean, if if we say we have no sin, what? We lie. (laughs) There's nobody here that's perfect. About 48 hours ago, I was examining my own heart. So I was hugging the toilet and wondering, what in the world is going on here? (laughs) I was feeling fine. (laughs) Now I'm sicker than a dog. See, if that's not happening on a regular basis, if we're not continuously looking at our own heart, if sin is allowed to fester and to take root in our own lives, the Lord has a plan for dealing with that sin through church discipline. Well, that kind of brings us to this, these couple verses here in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Because the cross of of Jesus Christ is central. It's central to our Christian faith. The cross reveals to us the character of God. It reveals to us His love for lost sinners. His perfect justice. They meet at the cross. God has love for lost sinners, and yet He is a totally just God, and they, they completely meet at the cross. If we want to grow in our love for God which is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, by the way, then we must be growing to understand and appreciate the message of the cross, the understanding of the cross, which shows his great love. If we want to grow in godliness, then we must understand and grow in the understanding of the significance of the cross in our lives because it confronts the most prevalent, the worst of all sins. The cross really confronts the sin of pride. The cross is the place where all the wounds of sin are healed. If you suffer from emotional problems, whether it's guilt, anxiety, depression, anger, whatever, there's healing for you at the cross. 
If you're going through tragedy or suffering in your life somehow, you know what? There's, there's comfort in abundance for you as you contemplate the sufferings of our spotless Savior on your behalf. I mean, when you stop and think, who is Peter writing to here in 1 Peter? He's writing to people who were slaves. And they were suffering unjustly under cruel masters. And when he says there that he uses that word wounds, by his wounds you have been healed, he uses a word that really refers to welts produced from whipping. So he was speaking right to their heart. Peter knew that meditating on the cross would produce in them a heart of overflowing gratitude to the one who bore so much on their behalf. And keeping the cross central really will protect you, it will protect myself from the many different false kinds of doctrine blowing around today. Satan hates the cross. He hates it. Because it really sealed his fate. It sealed his doom. And you know what? He is relentless in his attacks to undermine and thwart the cross. When you stop and think every cult or every false teaching, in some way, it diminishes the work of Jesus Christ. It diminishes the work of the cross. And it magnifies human ability. Somehow, if you can just do a little bit more, then God will like you a little bit more. I mean, currently, I think in our own country, we see the one doctrine that Satan is currently working on (laughs) eroding in America is simply the doctrine of sin. See, if you can convince people that they're not sinners who deserve God's wrath, then you know what? They don't need a Savior. So therefore, they won't be looking to the cross. I mean, it's far worse if you're a CEO of a company and you give some political funds to an organization that supports a law that wants to overturn gay marriage. Well, that's a far worse offense in the minds of so many than homosexuality itself. That's the society we live in today. If we can convince convince Christians that they are not ongoing sinners, that somehow we we reach a, a, a level of sinlessness and we don't need to daily repent of pride and other things in our own hearts and we don't daily need to be cleansed by the blood of Christ, then you know what? We don't need to go into a deeper understanding of the message of the cross as Christians. So Satan really works at neutralizing the cross, not only in the lives of non-believers, but in the lives of believers. So the centrality of the cross is crucial, I think. It's a foundation of all doctrine. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, these two verses basically show us this. It's there in your outline. Through Christ's death on the cross, those who turn to him are delivered from both the penalty and the power of sin. 
The penalty and the power of sin. See, all of our problems stem from sin in this human life. I was in my office this morning and heard this horrendous crash. And I thought, whoa, got my cell phone. I'm getting ready to dial 911, heading down to the intersection here where they have so many of these crashes. I get down there and there's nobody there. I thought, okay, they must have hit something. Did they go into a house? What, what happened here? And I saw the neighbor guy over here, Rob, and he was walking back to his house. And I said, <laughs> I went like this. And he goes, that's the first crash I've ever seen where two people literally smashed into each other and both of them took off in opposite directions. <laughs> Why would someone do that? Wouldn't you be concerned for the other person? You would do something like that because of sin. That's what causes something like that. I said, they must have pretty good cars because there's no glass, there's nothing there, there's no evidence of a wreck. Then we saw the pickup truck kind of speed around the block and zip down up in there, so I don't know where he was going, but why would somebody do something like that? Because of sin. All of our problems stem from sin. From our own sin, from the sin of others against us, from our sinful reaction to that, because of the fallen world we live in. The solutions to our problems center in the cross of Christ. First point there in the outline. Through Christ's death on the cross, those who turn to him are delivered from the penalty of sin. Look at what it says there in in 2 Peter. He himself, verse 24 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself. Christ. Christ himself bore our sins. He didn't bear his own sins. He was spotless. He was sinless in every way. No, he took on the sins of all those who would ever believe, and they were placed on him even though he never committed any sin. And he did so willingly. I find it curious that they use the word tree there rather than cross. And Peter no doubt had in mind Deuteronomy 21, chapter 22, or verses 22 and 23, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, where it prescribes the penalty for a condemned criminal. And it says that his body will be hanged on a tree, for he who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. The Apostle Paul refers to the same text in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, where he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, substitutionary death for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, both apostles were simply saying this, that Christ took on himself as our substitute the condemnation which we deserved. We all deserved death. We all deserved ultimate judgment in hell. And when Peter says that Christ bore our sins, he is really citing from Isaiah 53, 12. The holiness and the justice of God demand that a penalty be paid for sin. That's that's what has to happen. And Christ took that penalty on himself on the cross. Notice, he even mentions his body. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body. What is he referring to there? He's referring to the humanity of Christ. That he had a body just like you and I. 
It wasn't some kind of a, a supernatural body that didn't feel the pain when the nails went through his hands or through his feet or the, the, pulled out his beard or put the crown of thorns on his head or lashed him or spit in his face. He had feelings like everybody else. He had physical feelings. He had emotional feelings. He was human just like you and I, and yet he was 100% God. And since the human race had sinned, a member of the race had to pay. That's why we have the incarnation. A member of the human race had to pay the just penalty that God demands. Well, who could only do that but Christ? Because he was God incarnate. He was God in a bod. He came down and he took on flesh, the Bible says. But only one who was sinless himself could pay that penalty. Because everybody else had to pay for their own sins. Don't ever forget that Jesus Christ is the only one who's alone among the human race who committed absolutely no sin. 1 Peter, look up one verse there, two verses, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He's the only one capable of bearing the weight of our sins, the judgment of our sins. And this bearing of our sins was really, in God's mind, a legal transaction. That's what it was in which God the Father transferred to God the Son the penalty that we deserved. It'd be like you owing $5,000 on a credit card and someone else, without your knowledge, paying that debt. What's happening? Well, all of a sudden, you know what? You don't, you don't have any more debt. It was transferred to somebody else's account. Someone else paid that debt for you. That God sent Christ to bear our sins means that God doesn't just shrug off sin. He doesn't take it lightly. I mean, think about it. If God could just say, oh yeah, you're forgiven, don't worry about it. Don't let it happen again. It's okay. If he had that kind of mentality, do you think that he would really send his own son to go through what he went through on our behalf to die and to be ridiculed and to be mocked and to be beaten and to do everything that was done to him physically? And then, on top of that, spiritually, That God the Father turned his back, turned his face away from him. I think God takes sin pretty seriously. I mean, we live today in a day of of loose justice at best, I would say. You're always here on on O'Reilly or other programs, you know, some judge that, you know, somebody rapes and and, and tortures a, a... teenager or a young kid, young child for, for years, and the judge gives them, you know, six months. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? Why would someone do something like that? That's not justice. There's people that just shrug off sin like it's no big deal to God. They think somehow just, you know, he's just going to overlook it. But the Bible is very clear, beloved. The Bible says, without a doubt, all sin has to be judged. All sin. 
Either your sin is on you and you will bear its penalty or your sin is on Christ who bore the penalty. That's what it comes down to. Either way, God does not take sin lightly. The just penalty must be paid. I read a little story in the the Daily Bread and it talked about during the Napoleonic Wars, men were brought into the French army by a lottery system. And if your name was drawn, you had to go off to battle. But in the rare case that somehow you could get somebody else to take your place, maybe a brother or a nice neighbor, hey, you go to war instead of me. I don't know why they do that. But if you were able to do that, you were exempt. And on one occasion, the authorities came to a certain man and they told him that his name had been drawn. And he refused to go. And this was his excuse. He said, sorry, but I was killed two years ago. At first, they questioned his sanity, but he insisted that this was the fact of the case. He claimed that the records would show that he had been conscripted two years ago previously and that he had been killed in action. How can that be, they asked him. You're alive now. This doesn't make any sense. He explained that when his name came up, a close friend said to him, you know what, you have a very large family, but I'm not married, I'm single. Nobody's really dependent on me. I'll take your name and address and I'll go in your place. And you know what, the records upheld the man's claim. And the case actually was referred all the way up to Napoleon himself. And he decided that the country had no legal claim on that man. He was free because another man had died in his place. See, Jesus Christ bore your sin. He bore my sin. He bore it on the tree, on the cross. But you must take him up on the offer. If you turn to him, you will be delivered from the penalty of sin which God must impose because he's a just God. That's what Peter means when he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, on the tree. But that's not the end of the matter. Peter goes on to show that Christ's death not only delivers us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Because it's through Christ's death on the cross that those who turn to him are delivered from the power of sin. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. Now there are those who refer to this healing simply as physical healing. But clearly that's not the case here in this context. Nor is it the case in Isaiah 53, 5. The four there is the explanation. Peter is referring further what he means by the healing affected by Christ's death. Rather than straying like sheep as, he formerly, as we formerly lived, we now have been turned, it says passive there, turned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. In other words, Christ's death delivers us from the ongoing power of sin.
How does he do that? What are, what are some facts, the power of sin? How can we understand this correctly? What does it mean to be delivered from the power of sin? Well, first of all, it says there in, in verse 25, you were continually straying like sheep. Continually. Peter, Peter ver- uses a, a verb construction here that emphasizes the continual past action of straying. There was no stopping. You just continually strayed away. And before we turned to Christ as our sin bearer, we were characterized by straying from the good shepherd, going our own way. We'd go anywhere but to the shepherd, looking for anything to fill that void. We were lost even though we didn't know it. Very seldom have I ever witnessed to somebody and, and shared the Lord with somebody and they, their answer is, oh yeah, man, I've been searching. This is great. I, I knew I was a sinner. and I, Very seldom is that the case. Usually people aren't looking. You kind of got to share with them the, the, the gospel message for them to understand. We were in danger of harm, even death. But we weren't even, it wasn't obvious to us at all. We were lost, even though we may not have known it. I mean, God did us a big, big favor by comparing us to sheep. He really did, because uh, it kind of, it really points out who we are. Because domestic sheep are some of the dumbest animals around. They have to be under the care of a shepherd continuously. I mean, if they get lost in bad weather, they're not smart enough to survive. They'll die. I mean, they're not even smart enough to know that they're not smart enough. So they continually just wander off. They get themselves into trouble all the time. And you say, why do sheep do that? One thing, they don't appreciate the intelligence or the caring commitment of the shepherd. They don't care. Because he knows of better pasture higher up on the slopes. He knows that. So he tries to bring the sheep up there, but the sheep don't know that. And they don't know that he knows that. And they don't think he knows what he's doing. And when he tries to get them to climb up the hill, they all just usually scatter. Because it's difficult, and they're hungry. And they see a little patch of brown grass over here, and they don't realize that there's fields of green grass up here. And so they're, they're just quite content to fight over this little patch of brown grass right here. Why go through all the trouble of climbing up this hill? It doesn't make any sense. So following their appetites and ignoring the shepherd, they turn aside for this momentary gratification, and they miss the, the incredible provision that the shepherd provides for them up on the higher ground. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Sounds like people. Sheep aren't even smart enough to know that they're lost or to find their way back to their own shepherd if they wanted to. The only way they come back to him is if if he takes the initiative in going out and looking for them. And that's implied here in Peter's use of this passive verb. It says, have been turned to the shepherd. In other words, it's not something they're doing, it's something the shepherd is doing. 
We find that in the parable that Jesus told of the shepherd who left the what? 99 sheep, right? And he went out looking for the one that was lost. It means that basically none of us can boast in our own smarts in coming to Christ. If it was left up to us, we would still be lost. If we did turn to him, it's because he came looking for us. That's what scriptures bear up. He first loved us. So if you have not yet turned to him, if you have not yet come to him, I just want you to understand, you know what? You can't do this yourself. You can't save yourself. But the shepherd is seeking you. Even here this morning, he's seeking you. He's calling your name. He wants to deliver you from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin that causes you to stray off from his loving care and protection. But also the power of sin required death and new life for deliverance. See, the power of sin is so great that we, we can't be delivered from it by just promising to turn over a new leaf. Or by sheer willpower. We can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, okay, I'm going to just live a new life. There had to be the death of our old man towards sin and the resurrection to new life in Jesus Christ. That's why it says there that having died to sins, we might live to righteousness. It's the same message that Paul preaches when we get to Romans 6-8. through 8, The same message he preaches in Galatians 2.20. Same message he preaches in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4. to 4, That when Christ died, we who believe in him died with him. We were identified with him in his death. And when he rose from the dead, we too were raised to newness of life. So that the power of sin over us was broken. That's what's so wonderful about the illustration of baptism. When you follow the Lord in believer's baptism, what are you signifying? You're signifying that you're a new person in Christ. It's the first act of obedience for a Christian. You look throughout the Bible, that's the first thing they did is they got baptized. New believers. It was a sign of transformation. It was a sign to the world that, you know what? I am no longer my own. I'm, 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 I'm a new person in Christ. And when you put someone down under the waters, you're signifying the burial with Christ and then raised to the newness of life. Baptism itself doesn't save you. It's just a symbol. Just like our communion time is a symbol. We're identified with him in his death. And we're also identified with him in his resurrection. Now, you might be sitting there this morning and you say, well, that's, that's fine and dandy, Steve, but I don't feel very dead to sin. <laughs> to be honest, I don't even feel faint or weak towards sin. Matter of fact, sin has a pretty big hold on my life right now. The same evil lusts which formerly controlled my life, they rear up and they entice me with the same forces as they did before my conversion. What's going on there? What does the Bible mean when it talks about this death to sin. First of all, being dead to sin is an accomplished fact that takes place the instant I am united with Christ at conversion. We don't know about it necessarily at the time of our conversion, but it's still positionally true. The moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were identified with him in his death on the cross. 
so that all the benefits of his death became yours. As Paul puts it in uh, uh, Romans 6 there, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that our body of sin might be rendered inoperative, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. It's true, so believe it. That's, that's what it says. And you might still say, well, you know what? I still don't feel dead to sin. It still has a hold of my life. How can I believe something that's contrary to my experience? The key, basically, is to understand that by death, the Bible never means cessation of existence. Never means that. When the Bible speaks of death, it rather speaks of separation. It doesn't mean you just seek to exist. When you die physically, your soul is what? Separated from your body. To be identified with Christ in his death means that I am separated from the power of the old nature and from this evil world system. When you die physically, your soul is separated from the body. And you go to a viewing and you see a body laying there in a casket. It's just that. It's a body. It's a dead body. There's no life there. There's nobody there. It's just the outward physical features that we associate with the person. Sometimes they make them look pretty good at the viewings. You know, you're looking there, boy, boy they look great. And you've got to remind yourself, hey, this person's dead. This is not this person. We're separated from that which formerly had a stranglehold on us. But you know what? I can still choose to obey God rather than the lusts of my flesh. The idea of separation is brought out by the the word that Peter uses for death, which occurs only here in the New Testament, by the way. It meant to be removed from or to depart. Much like we speak of someone who's departed, departed one. Thayer says this, that Peter means that we might be utterly alienated from our sins. Our old nature is not eradicated. As long as I'm in this body of flesh, Paul says, but its power over me has been broken by the cross so I can live separately from it. Good illustration of this, if you've ever worked on your car and if you've ever jacked up the, the drivetrain and you had it up on the wheels and you, you started the, the car up and you got in the car and stuck it in drive and you could floor that thing. It's not going to go anywhere. Why? Because the wheels are separated from the pavement. Is the power still there? Definitely. Is everything working? Yes. But it's rendered inoperative. Through separation. That's kind of the illustration here. The one aspect of our union with Christ is that we've been separated from the power of sin. Even though it still revs like a a crazy thing inside of us sometimes. The second aspect of death also involves something that we must do. Not just something that's a fact 
but something that we must do. Not something that's already done by virtue of our union with Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we see this. We see both of these aspects because Paul says there in verse 3, he says that we have died to sin. We have died. We're dead. But then in verse 5, a couple verses next, he says, therefore put to death. (laughs) He tells us that we must do it. And so both of those things are true. That we are, verse 3, you have died, your your life is hidden in Christ. But then down in verse 5, he says, therefore put to death what is earthly in your sexual immorality, impurity, passion. In other words, it's a choice of your own will. You have to express your will in this matter. You have to dominate your body. You have to dominate your desires. It's like Paul says, I beat against the body continuously, buffet it. So we need to understand that we're separated from the power of sin. But we still have to make that decision. Denying ourselves in obedience to God. I once heard someone ask John MacArthur how he buffets his body, how he continually kind of seeks to overcome the desires of his flesh. And the one thing he said I thought was pretty practical. He says, I, I deny myself dessert. Whenever I'm offered dessert, I'll just deny it. <laughs> I thought, that's kind of interesting. You know, who doesn't like dessert, right? And he said, I love dessert. He said, every, every time I'm able to just deny it, it shows me, hey, I'm still in control of my body. <laughs> that's kind of a neat practical thing to think about. But it has to start at the thought level if we want to live in holiness before God. And Peter here is referring to the first aspect of death, to the separation that takes place positionally when we trust Christ. Die there, and in, 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 in Peter, is, it's an aorist passive participle, which basically means this. It means the action precedes that of the main verb, live. Having died to sins in Christ's death, we are now going on to live to righteousness, which means obedience to the commands of the Bible. If you're a believer here this morning and you're continually being defeated by sin, then you need to either enter into a deeper, a, a deeper understanding to the meaning of the cross, and that will help you separate from the power of sin. power of sin caused us to stray continually as sheep. It required death and new life for deliverance. And then thirdly, the power of sin requires the ongoing care of our great shepherd and overseer. It says, you have been turned to the shepherd and guardian overseer of your souls. What a wonderful picture it is, especially for the slaves that Peter's writing to. Specifically, they're being mistreated by their earthly masters. They're being whipped. They're being tortured. And Peter tells them that they are under the tender care of a good shepherd. And this good shepherd has their welfare of all the sheep in view. The word guardian is episkopos, which we later translate bishop. It's referred to as shepherd or bishop. It means 
to watch over in the sense of guarding. Jesus, the good shepherd, watches over the souls of his sheep. Ask yourself this question. Does the fact that Jesus is watching everything you think, you say, you do, make you comfortable or uncomfortable? The simple fact that Jesus is watching everything you say, you do, you think, does that make you feel uneasy or comfortable? If you're seeking to live to righteousness, if your focus is on the cross where the good shepherd laid down his life for you as one of his sheep, then you ought to be comforted by that thought that he is keeping watch over your soul. It doesn't eliminate the need for church leaders to keep watch. We're instructed to do that as elders. Nor from you to guard your own self from sin. But if you seek to follow him, we can know that he will feed, he will lead, he will guard us as a shepherd and overseer. So we're delivered from both the penalty and the power of sin, but we have to turn to him. We have to be willing to turn to him. Last point here, three, to be delivered from the penalty and power of sin, we must turn to Christ. As I mentioned before, this passive verb points to God's initiative in turning us. We don't turn ourselves to Christ because of our own intelligence or our own willpower. It doesn't work that way. It's because God has graciously turned us. And at the same time, I want to say this, we are responsible to turn from our sin to God. Clearly points out that the Word of God does several places. A turning from the self-willed life that seeks our own way, like a straying shepherd, to a life yielded to the shepherd and oversight of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. True conversion is not just some intellectual assent to what the Bible says. That's not what true conversion is. Saving faith always involves an exchange of masters from self to Christ. A transformation. Something has to change. While we spend a lifetime growing in our submission to Christ, if we're not seeking to live under his lordship, our claim to faith should be very suspect. I want to leave you with a little story of a mother of three. And she went to a counselor, and in the course of these counseling sessions, she was asked this question, which of your three children do you love most? And she answered instantly, I love all my three children the same. And the answer seemed too quick and too glib for the counselor, so he probed a little bit more. Come now, you, you, have, you love all three of your children the same? Yes, she affirmed, I love them all equally. And he said, that's psychologically impossible. If you're not willing to level with me, then we'll have to end this session. With this, the young woman broke down and cried a little bit and said, all right, all right, I do love all three of my, I do not love all three of my children the same. When one of my three children is sick, I love that child more. When one of my children is in pain or lost, I love that child more. When one of my children is confused, 
I love that child more. And when one of my children is bad, really, really bad, I love that child all the more. But except for those exceptions, I do love all three children just the same. See, I share that with you to say that the cross says that God especially loves those who are hurting, those who are under the penalty and the power of sin. And this morning, if you'll just turn to Christ, and if you'll put your trust in what he did for you in taking your penalty for sin on the cross, he will deliver you from sin's penalty and from its power. He wants to be your shepherd. He wants to be your overseer. He wants to care for you. He wants to forgive your sin. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He wants to heal you from the devastating effects of sin. I ask this morning, will you turn to him? Father, we thank you for your word this morning as you prepare our hearts for this communion table. I pray that we all have a little better understanding of what it means, why Christ had to die, why we celebrate that death. We know that in the death of Christ and on the cross, is the foundation of our faith. If it wasn't for the cross, we would have no faith. We would have no forgiveness. We would have no experience for the love of God. We would have no understanding of God whatsoever. And so, Lord, we thank you that you saw fit to send your son and that he willingly came to this earth to not just live in this sinful world for 30-some years, but also to endure the hardship of the cross, the physical aspect of it, the pain, the penalty, but then even the spiritual nature of the judgment that was upon him. Lord, we can't conceive of God turning his back on God. That doesn't make sense in our mind, but that's what happened. You couldn't even look upon your own, your own son because he was paying the penalty for our sin. Father, we pray this morning, if there's any here that have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, we know that you do that work in the heart and you draw that human soul to you, but Lord, there's also part of our volition that you work through. And Father, we, we must trust in you. We must confess you as Lord and Savior. And if we're willing to do that, cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. Show me the way of salvation through Christ. That's a prayer that you will answer. Each person here this morning has given a certain amount of light into your word, a certain amount of biblical truth that one day they will be held account for as they stand before you. And I just pray that the words spoken here this morning, the time that we shared in song, would draw them closer to the Savior that they will put their faith, their trust in you ultimately. And for believers, Lord, I pray that we would be reaffirmed in our faith, that, Lord, if there's any sin in our lives at this point, I pray that we would be willing to repent of that and claim your forgiveness. We thank you for your ongoing cleansing. And, Father, we just thank you for the power of the cross in our lives, that it allows us to continue to live this Christian life each and every day, in a way that honors you. Father, we do think of those in our body who may be dealing with sickness at this time. 
Maybe they can't get out to church as they once could. Think of Paul and Lois Munson, Lord. Father, we think of others, Lord, who may be recovering. We think of Jerry Wukob. She's recovering from his hernia surgery. Just pray, Lord, that you would watch over these brothers and sisters, and Father, that you would lay your healing hand upon their bodies if they're sick. Father, if they're just older and can't come out, I pray that you would speak truth in their, into their lives through a CD or through the radio, through the television, that they would continue to read your word, continue to be built up in their faith, continue to believe that they have a purpose here on this earth and still being here. And Father, I pray that you would encourage their hearts. And Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.